precious name, Jesus, the hope of the ages and the hope for every one of us. Lord, uh, you are a light. You are our strength. And Father, we need your help uh, to make it through each day and each week. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the hope of the gospel power of God unto salvation to all who would believe. And Father, as we open your word this morning, help us to cloud out the things that would draw us from you and to, Lord, resolve as we live this, leave this place today to be more pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. We're going to look at verses 14 through 30 in just a moment. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to begin in verse 14. We'll be reading that in just a moment, Matthew 25 and verse 14. You know, my favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. I never saw It's a Wonderful Life until I was a seminary student. I don't know how my parents had me miss that, but you may remember that movie if you've seen it, uh, the star of the movie. Jimmy Stewart uh, played a man named George Bailey, and George had a major financial crisis come into his life because of the actions or misdeeds of his witless uncle. He faced the threat financially of losing his family savings and loan business and um, just all of the difficulties that would go through that, and he was, needless to say, very distraught, and in sort of the um, optimal scene, really, of that movie, uh, George Bailey was contemplating taking his life. He was just thinking about jumping off of a bridge when suddenly uh, this goofy but caring angel named Clarence comes on the scene, and he in, uh, physically saves George from what he was going to do, and as they entered dialogue after that, George said, I just wish I'd never been born, and Clarence said, okay, you're going to receive the opportunity to see what it would be like had George Bailey not been born, and so from that point, almost to near the end of the movie, he, George, was on the outside and looking at all of the events in his family in his small town how life was without George Bailey. And he looked and he asked about his brother to Clarence. He said, well, your brother passed away at the age of six. Because with George not there as a young child to save his brother, his brother didn't live to see all that he would fulfill. Then there was a, a pharmacist that was in the town and they went into a bar area and, and there was the pharmacist, he was a drunk, and he realized that had he been born, this man's life would have turned out different. In other words, the pharmacist made a mistake that was very costly, but George, when he was young and working for him, caught that mistake and saved him all of the problems that would have happened had George not been born. His wife didn't have uh, the opportunity to marry the love of her life, but more than anything, Mr. Potter, the evil evil antagonist, had George not been around, would have had total control over that town to the detriment of the entire town. 
And so George Bailey had the opportunity to see what life would have been like had he not been born, but he was born. And so many great things happened as a result of that. And as I think back to that, I think about the opportunity you and I have every day to make a difference. Because we are there, we have an opportunity to make a difference in the kingdom of God, that people's lives can be different if we'll be willing to be used of God, not just to help a family or a community, but to transform individuals, see God transform individuals through our ministry. Look with me at Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents here. And and in speaking of the kingdom, he says, just like a man, verse 14, about to go on a journey, he called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and still another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had two talents also approached. He said, master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received the one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant, if you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, this passage uh, from which we just read is a a small part of a greater segment of scripture called Jesus' Olivet Discourse that's found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In fact, during our Sunday school lessons for our adult lessons in uh, this uh, segment of time, we are going through the Olivet Discourse, and as I was perusing the quarterly, I noticed that the very last lesson in this series of messages in Sunday school actually finishes at verse 13, so I won't be overlapping what we're going to be studying in the coming weeks. It's a parable that's familiar to many people. It's the parable of the talents. Now, when I speak of talent here, In this context, it's not some special ability, like we say someone has a talent in music or in the performing arts or a talent of knowing how to make money. That's not what it is speaking about here. But a talent was a unit of money. 
And unlike the widow's mite, to which we looked uh, in our series of messages uh, leading up to Resurrection Day Sunday, a talent was worth a lot of money. In fact, a talent often was a measurement of silver or gold, and a talent was 75 pounds worth of precious metal. So in this parable, we see a master leaving on a journey and entrusting to certain servants varying amounts of this currency of talents. To one he leaves five talents, to another he leaves two, and to a final one he leaves one. The monies were not theirs. In fact, even we see as he gives them more monies, at least the first two uh, to whom he returned that received a favorable response, notice what he says, I'll give you trust over and you can share in my joy. So even what he gives them in reward was not just, okay, this is yours, you just take it and do what you want. And so we see that two of them received a favorable response here, but the last one did not. I want to look this morning briefly at just four things that we can learn from our text. As you remember, last week we looked at the subject of our children's ministry and how valuable children are to the ministry. We have opportunities that still abound for you to help in our children's ministry, whether it be in the midweek ministry, our upcoming vacation Bible school, whether God is leading you financially to help support with the snacks or coordinate various things. And so as we look at it, God has given us opportunities to serve him in the local church. When someone comes into the local church and desires to be a part, as a pastor, I have a twofold thought process. First, how can the church minister to this person, where he or she is, where this family is? But secondly, how is God going to use that individual to serve in the ministry of the local church? See, the local church is not just from 11 to 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. And the, the local church and the ministry of the local church goes well beyond the walls of this church, and it involves more time than just this hour that we're together this morning. And so as we look at it, and as we look, God, what would you have me to do in the ministry of the church? We need to understand really four things, and the first is this. As our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true proprietor of all. Even what we have is not ours. Even who we are, we're not ours. We had nothing to do with who we are. Well, you say, well, you don't understand. I've worked hard to get where I have in my profession. Well, did you have any responsibility over understanding that you would even awaken to your right mind today? Did you have any control over that? You know, years before Jesus spoke these words in the parable of the talents, we read of a narrative in the Old Testament in regard to King David. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And David, who had lots of successes in his life, at this particular time in his life 
was like a man without a country. While the people loved him, the leadership under Saul rejected him. And so in a sense, the leadership of Israel rejected the one who would be their future king. And in a strange turn of events, David, seeking to just yoke himself in some type of fellowship, ended up among the Philistine people. He began to make some friends, specifically with a man named Achish. But as so happened, the Philistines were preparing to go into war and talk began to mingle among the Philistine camp. David is a Jew and David is going to turn on us. Now, David had no intention to do so, but the leadership among the Philistines so emphasized this that David's friend Achish, a Philistine himself, had to come to David and say this, David, I know you're a good guy. I know you would never do anything to thwart what we're going to do. But the other leaders here in Philistia have said, you can't go with us to battle. You just have to go home. And so here was David. He was a man accepted nowhere. That was demoralizing enough. But then David took his men, which at least were 600, and they returned to Ziklag in Philistine territory. And when they went there, the first thing they saw, everything was ransacked. Their wives, their children, their possessions were taken away. And so here's David. He doesn't have anyone who's with him. And even his own men turned against him for leading them into this predicament. In fact, the scripture says in 1 Samuel 30 that they were ready to stone him. And you know what David did? He prayed. We can always pray. No matter what we're going through in our lives, God is listening. And so David in this predicament said, God, what should I do? And God said, you go to the Amalekites and you attack them. And so he took the men and he said, I have a plan. And they went and they pursued the Amalekites who were fleeing with the families, their, the, the, David and the men's families and their possessions. They came upon an Egyptian who was straggling and he pointed them the direction of the Amalekite temporary camp. And the scripture says that David and the men, 400 of them, went and attacked the Amalekites and took back every single wife, child, and possessions, everything. Not one thing was missing. And they defeated and overwhelmed the Amalekites. Only a few hundred Amalekites survived and they fled. The scripture tells us after that happened, there was a journey. They were making their way back to Ziklag. And as we read, only 400 of the 600 fulfilled the task. In other words, 200 of the men, as they were pursuing the Amalekites, they were exhausted and they had to just set up camp where they were. And so only 400 actually overthrew the Amalekites. And so as they came back, and you can picture it, they're making their way back, and they come to those 200, and the 400 begin to ridicule them. And they say, you have no part in this. You didn't do anything. You didn't finish out the task. We should receive the plunder and not share it with you. And David stopped the men, whom he called corrupt and worthless, not the ones that stayed back, but the ones who went to fight. And he said this, and listen. You must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us, 
and handed over to us the raiders who came against us. In other words, what he's saying is slow your roll here. You didn't do this. You may have fought the battle, but you never could have won the battle had it not been for the Lord. And so this bounty that you're celebrating is not yours. It's God's. It's not for you to determine what to do with it. It is God's determination. All glory and all determination is to be for him. Do we live our lives with that awareness? You know, many of us, we're very uh, adept, very successful in what we do, and there's great fulfillment in our work. Do we stop and really think, God, it's from you. It's of you. It's not of me. The bounty was not theirs to give or to refuse. It was the Lord's. But I want you to see a second truth. What we have is not from us, but it is a trust from the Lord. Again, you see that reward, the affirmation of the first two. He says, well done to both of them, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. He didn't say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you management. I'm going to give you rule over those things. And he said, you can share your master's joy. You're in my possession." Our positions, our platforms, our abilities, they're from God. They're from God. Don't mistake that. I've shared a couple times before. Kemper preached a message. It's probably been five or ten years ago out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. It was one of the, usually he's filling the pulpit and I'm out, but this particular Sunday I was there, and I remember and he's always preached great messages, but I remember the thrust of that message in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in verse 17, it says this, You may say to yourself, my power and my ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to get wealth. You say, well, I've worked hard for what I have. Who's given you the ability, the physical ability to do it? You say, well, I speak great. Who gives you your voice? You say, well, my mind, I'm able to apprehend things. I can do this. I can do that. Who gives you the mind that you have? We serve a generous God. By the grace of God, he gives us the opportunity to participate in so many blessings. He has ownership. He has control over all things, and that includes you and me. It's true of our possessions and even our positions. Sometimes we become possessive of our positions, and we think we're the ones who have done it. Maybe the greatest illustration of this is found in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. Great, and I don't mean great in a positive way, but great in a powerful way, that ruler uh, over Babylon and all of the known world in that day. The scripture tells us that in the 500s and 600s BC that Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world, but he learned in a humbling way everything he had was at the hands of God, the mercy of God to him. Daniel 5 tells us that one day he was making his way around, along his roof. Now, he didn't have angled roofs like we had there was a flat roof and as he was able to climb that building and walk out on that roof he began to look and it gave him a view of everything around him 
And he said this, is not Babylon the great? Is that not it that I have built? And the scripture says that things began to change with him as the words were coming out of his mouth. The scripture says that he was driven into the fields like an animal. That this man who could have had any delicacy and any person handed him that delicacy was driven to the ground to eat like the cattle. The scripture says that he became unkept. His fingernails grew like talons. His hair grew to where he looked like a savage. The most powerful man in the world was humbled. And the scripture says that he came to his senses. His sanity returned. And you know what? His tune changed. He began to glorify God. Where you work, what you have, the influence you wield, all comes from God. The servants in this parable may have had in possession that money for a time, but make no mistake, that was at the will of God for the purpose of God. It was entrusted to them. That leads to a third point. Right now, you and I are in possession of something or many things that are not our own. Every time, you know, we go to God's word, we're called to do two things, and sometimes we do it thoughtlessly, but this is the process of studying the Bible. We have exploration and application. In exploration, we study the Bible and simply put, what does it say? And then application, what does it say to me? And so whatever passage we're studying, whether it's a narrative or direct teaching, we need to read and understand what it says in the context. What is it saying in general? But then we have to add, what does this mean to me? In exploration, what is it saying here? Well, in this parable, it's pretty clear. The master is a reference to God spiritually. The servants would be those whom God has gifted. I would consider that to be every person. Because God has gifted every person. And, and we've been given possessions. We've been given things. We've been given platforms. But then the question is the application. What does this say to me? What it says to me speaks right now. It speaks right at this very moment. Sometimes when we look at God's word, we begin to think out in the future. Well, I'm going to do this. No, the, it speaks to us right now. God has gifted you. And God, when he has called people into the church, the church is not one person. The church is a body made up of many parts. Each part, as it does its part, is able to function properly. And that's why we have various ministries, music ministry, ministry to children, teaching ministries, servant ministries, administrative ministries, all of these things. And God has placed you in the church to serve. Right now, we have a great need in our children's ministry. We're continuing to appeal. There's a need here. God has called. God has gifted you. God has given that. Not for you to, to possess, but to bring back to him. So many people say, I'll serve God when? Or I will give to God if I get this much money. And the question really comes back, what are we doing with what we have right now? You know, excuses are lame. We like to use them. 
We make excuses to not do what we really don't want to do. I don't want to go to church today, and so I've got to cut the grass. I've got to do this. We make exceptions to do what we want to do. Man, I want to go do that. I want to go eat here. I want to go have fun do that. We make exceptions. We make exceptions to do what we want to do, but we make excuses to not do. The problem is there are too many excuses in regard to the church. God's left over. The, the servant in this parable, the one who, who was judged of God, said, oh, God, I, I know you to be tough, so I hit it. Or I was afraid, so I hit it. Did the master like that? He didn't like it. He rebuked him. He addressed him harshly. He took what he had given, gave it to someone else. I wonder today, what type of return are you making to God right now? I'm not saying what you're going to do next week. What are you doing right now in the ministry of the church? Look, we're living in days when the church needs to rise up. The church needs to rise up and say, we're going to make a stand here. We complain about this world all the time, yet we don't serve God in the church so the church can be everything it needs to be so that we can equip young men, young women, older men, older women to live in this society like it has. Hey, I love entertainment. I love sports. You won't find anybody who loves sports more than me. But if I teach my kids sports, is that going to make great eternal reward? But if I teach my children Jesus, that has benefit for now and forever. We ought to have people busting at the seams to work with children. Eternity is at stake. But then finally, there's coming a day of accounting. The master gave charge. He left another territory for a considerable time. Then it says, the master returned to the servants for the purpose of settling accounts with them. Two of them, their return was acceptable. The master said, well done. To the other one, in spite of his excuse making, he received a harsh rebuke, withdrawal of what was given, and ascending into darkness. Listen, Jesus is coming back. As sure as I'm standing here, we studied in the Sunday school lesson today, Jesus is coming back. And every one of us, when he sets up that earthly kingdom, He's going to do something else in his coming. It's going to be a day of accounting. Every April 15th or close about is income tax day. I was sharing a revival this week as I was preaching. Um, you know, death, taxes, and the Washington, I think they're called the commanders missing the playoffs. Those are three things you can count on. And I'm a I'm a Washington fan. He's coming back. You know, we can try to kick down the road, and I know when extenuating circumstances, April 15th, we can get it extended out and all that, but there's still a payday. There's still a day of answering. 
We can't change God's day. He's determined it. But we can be ready for it. How are you spending your time? Is the kingdom your focus? How about your finances? Is God an afterthought? You're enjoying all of the pleasures of life, yet the one who feeds you is being neglected. How about your circle of influence? Are you using it for God's glory, the people God has placed in around under you? How about your gifts and your abilities in this church? Do you find joy in serving God? You know, for a number of years, I attended 4-H camp right over here at Holiday Lake, and I enjoyed it. Although I did get in trouble sometime by being a nuisance and had to tote those trash cans at night, I think part of that was the young teen leaders just loved seeing us go through the torture of it. 4-H camp was fun. But every year on Friday, camp would come to a close. We would pile in the Abmax County school buses, the public school would let 4-H use it. We would come back, usually to the primary or the elementary school. When we came back, we would come out with all of our belongings. And my mom, to this day, has said, Rick, there has never been a child I remember that went to 4-H camp that left more at 4-H camp than you did. I mean, flip-flops I left in the shower, my watch I'd leave by the um, bedside there, um, shirts, socks, everything. And I remember a lot of the other kids, they would come and they'd leave, and we'd be waiting for the second transport, and that was the usually a truck that had all of the unclaimed stuff, and they'd just throw it in a pile. And mom and I would be rummaging, trying to figure out what I left. I couldn't even bring back what I took. God's word is telling you and me today. He doesn't expect us just to bring back to him what he gave us. He expects more. He expects more. This one that brought the one said, hey, I said, I was, no, doesn't work. So where do we go from here? We don't just set off in our own strength and do it. I've done that before. I can be impulsive. But we need to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit tells us, what he is saying. Even as I speak, God may be stirring your heart in a particular ministry. Obedient. But it's not just enough to be obedient, but we've got to go in the strength of the Lord. We can't accomplish anything that pleases God apart. We're called to share in his joy just like that master. When we share in that joy, that's a joint work. He's not, God's not sending you into a ministry. He's not calling you to give financially or give your platform and leaving you there alone. He's a generous God. And the question is, what's up with what we have? What's up with what we have? Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you would stir our hearts. Father, there are churches all around us that are dwindling. That are looking back and saying, oh, those were the years. But yet, Father, some of these same churches today can hardly have a handful of people. Lord, it didn't happen suddenly. 
it happened generationally as people became observers in the church and not participants in the ministry of the church. Father, we pray your mercy upon us as a people. And Lord, forgive me as the leader of this church for not exhorting enough of how urgent the task is. We look at this world around us and we say, what can we do in every week, Lord? You have given us this body as an opportunity to make an eternal difference. Father, speak to our hearts. Empower us, Lord, to carry out the work of the local church because, Lord, when all is said and done, all that carries value into the next world is what we have done in obedience to you in your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how God has spoken to you today. It's been a great week of revival up in Dillwyn. And every night.